0: Good morning, this morning we have the opportunity to join millions of Christians all around this globe who are going to turn to a similar passage about the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ on this, what has been traditionally called Palm Sunday, where the palm branches were cut off and laid before the King who is coming mounted on a donkey. The sermon is entitled this morning, Viva Christus Rex. This means, long live Christ the King. Long live Christ the King. Well, last week, we were in John chapter 17, just the night before Jesus' crucifixion. And I made many of you nervous. I could tell some of you were looking at about 25 minutes into the sermon, and I was only on verse number 3. And I had told you that we were going through the entire chapter... Rookie mistake. Um, And so this week we have balanced back out and we're just going to look at one verse. Zechariah chapter number 9. Verse number 9. If you find your way to the book of Matthew, the first book of the New Testament, you can go backwards just one book and you'll find Malachi and then backwards one more book and you will find the prophet of Zechariah. Zechariah chapter number 9. Verse number 9. The Bible says... Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Here the prophet Zechariah is telling the people of God to rejoice greatly. He calls them, two different terms, he calls them the daughters of Zion and the daughters of Jerusalem. The daughters of Zion and the daughters of Jerusalem. There is a new way of reading the Bible that hasn't existed for very long, but I would wager that many of you, if not most of us, not all of us, have been taught the scriptures from this new perspective. There's a new perspective called dispensationalism that... ...began in the 1850s with a man named Darby. And they would draw stark division between the Old and the New Testaments... ...so much so that you might hear preachers today say things like... ...well, that was the God of the Old Testament. As if the God that we have now is a God of a New Testament... ...as if they are opposed to one another. Or almost as if God has changed in some way. We know, of course, that God does not change... He is unchanging. And so, when we look at phrases like daughters of Zion, daughters of Jerusalem, we should rightly read our scriptures and conclude that this is speaking of the church. That the church is Israel, that that Israel is the church. Whenever it's speaking, O daughters of Zion, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you are found in Christ... He is speaking to us. Now, certainly, there are aspects of the Old Testament, the civil law of God, where God was using words to speak specifically to His governance of His people as a nation that wouldn't be a one-for-one with the church. Certainly, we recognize that. However, when we read in the Old Testament about Zion and the daughters of Jerusalem, He's speaking to us as the church ...as the Bride of Christ. Shout aloud. Does that make you nervous as a Presbyterian to shout aloud? You frozen chosen. Shout aloud. Why would we have reason to shout? Because heaven has come down to us. We could not scale to get to our God. We could not have enough good works... We could not climb. We tried to make a tower named Babel to get there, but we couldn't reach it. No, we could not come to Him. So He put on flesh and He came to us. That is why we have reason to shout aloud. That is why we have reason to rejoice. Some may emphasize here that we must have happiness as a Christian... That Christians should basically always have a smile on their face and be chipper and happy. Some have even alienated themselves from the body of Christ. They've forsaken the assembling of themselves with the body of Christ in church because they've wrongly believed that they just always have to be happy, that Christians need to always be happy and have a smile on their face, and there's not really any reason that a Christian should ever not have a smile. Perhaps they have a more melancholy disposition and they never quite felt right in church with all the clapping and all the smiling and all the cheering and all the shouting. But the prophet tells us to rejoice. The fact of the matter is that sometimes the daughters of Sion are depressed. Sometimes life is difficult and you feel like you couldn't possibly go to church and fake a smile one more time. I think there's a key distinction here that we miss often. The distinction between what is happiness and what is joy. There's a big difference between happiness and joy. You see, happiness is dependent upon the circumstances that are around us. If if my dog gets hit by a car, I'm not going to be happy. I'm not going to be smiling. If the man in front of me is driving 25 miles an hour, I'm not going to be happy. If the kids are crying, it happens a lot. And I am not happy. And if mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. Because the circumstances around us influence our happiness, don't they? But joy is something that is altogether completely different. Joy is the disposition of the heart of a Christian that does not depend upon external circumstances around them. If you survey Christian history, church history, it doesn't take you long to find the stories of the martyrs who have faced death with joy in their hearts. Many, many accounts have showed where martyrs knew the next day they were going to be hanged or burned alive or beheaded. And they were found singing. They were found rejoicing. There's a famous story of a man named St. Lawrence in the 3rd century. And he was a Christian under a horrific reign of this brutal king. And what was traditional, what was the thing to do with Christians at the time was to burn them. But this particular king did not think that that was enough for St. Lawrence. So he sentenced him to be burned, as was usual, but on a grill. They placed a grill and they placed him on top of that grill. And the story is told that as St. Lawrence was being burned on that grill, he looked at the executioner and he said, you can turn me over now, this side is done. He was joking. There's another man named Sir Thomas More, a godly man who was sentenced to beheading. To be beheaded for treason by a very wicked king, Henry VIII. Perhaps some of you have heard his story. The reason why he was to be beheaded for treason was because he dared not bless the king's unlawful marriage. Well, they they created this scaffolding for him to be beheaded on so that he was lifted up and everybody could see him as an example. This king wanted to make him... An example, and as he was climbing up this scaffolding, he was an elderly man and he looked at the executioner and he asked for help because to come up this ladder, to go up this scaffolding, the, it was made of wood and it was rickety and it was shaking. And he looked at the executioner and he asked for help. And as he was almost to the top, he looked down at his executioner and he said, thank you for helping me up. At least you won't have to help me down. And then his humor does not end as he's facing death. He goes forward and he sees this executioner who he knew this executioner respected him as a Christian and he even begged him to forgive him for what he was about to do. And he looked at the executioner and he said, take heart, you're just doing what your king has commanded you to do. He tells him to take heart and he, he tells him, as he puts his neck into the braces where, his, where he would be beheaded, he tells this executioner, all I ask, you're forgiven, all I ask is that you take aim because I have a very short neck. He's trying to be jolly, still he's telling his second joke. And then, as this is going to happen, the executioner is nervous, he doesn't want to have to kill this man, he raises up the axe. He's about to swing it, and he, Sir Thomas More says, wait, 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 wait. wait!" And he takes his long flowing beard, and he pulls it out, away from his neck. And this is what he says, I quote, it would be a shame for the beard to be cut. It has certainly not committed any treason. The very, that's his last words. The very next moment, he is beheaded, and he is before the presence of the God whom he has served. Now, were these deranged men, this side is not finished, flip me over, was this just a crazy man? Or did he possess a joy where he could face death with hope? In a hope that this world has no concept of. When we survey the world around us, it is dark. It's grim. We live in a world where Psychopaths go in and shoot small children in their schools when they're just trying to get an education. We live in a world where riots and shootings and mindless killing of infants in their mother's womb happen day after day, hour after hour in our country. The safest place for a child should be in his mother's womb, and that is where they are oftentimes murdered. How can we have joy? In this world with these circumstances. Well, that is because our joy is not dependent upon the circumstances around us that are ever changing. That's our happiness. That's our mood. That's our feelings. Our feelings are fleeting. They're, they're like a roller coaster because those are, they are impacted by the circumstances that are around us. But our joy is our hope that is not dependent upon the things that change around us, but it is dependent upon he who does not change that is within us. Life is hard. This life is incredibly difficult. But what is the worst possible thing that can happen to a Christian? I mean, we read these accounts of these martyrs. It's pretty bad. It's it's horrific, these things that That happened to these Christians. But they could face joy. They could face death with joy and even joking because they knew that this is the worst thing that they can possibly do to me. And in the next moment, I will be with my God forever. They can die and be forever with the Lord. That's the worst thing that can happen to them. So we struggle against sin. We struggle against this world. We struggle against Satan and his minions. But it's just a little while longer. Just a little while longer. And then, as we sang about this morning, we won't struggle any longer. There will be no more sin. There will be no more death. There will be no more tears. There will be no more sadness. There will be no more disease that wrecks our body. Just a little while longer. And then it will be no more because our King is coming. Our King is coming. Rejoice. Sing aloud because your King is coming to you. Behold, your King is coming to you. He is righteous. He is just. He is lawful. Our King of righteousness has come and He conquers all of our and His enemies. Just as Israel was commanded to go into the promised land, To go and to subdue it. To conquer those peoples and those nations. But the Lord had already given them the victory. All they had to do is go and to take it. So Christ has conquered our sins. Our sins are defeated. And we can live in victory over them. The power of sin is no more a chain that is around our neck. That enslaves us. Because the head of the serpent has been crushed by our king. Just like Israel, we only have to go out and to take what has already been given to us because our king has rendered our enemies powerless. The early church had a popular view of Jesus on the cross as setting a trap for Satan. St. Augustine calls it a mousetrap and he uses an analogy of this mousetrap. He says that the cross of Christ... ...was the trap, and he baited that trap with his own blood. And with this trap, Satan, the great deceiver, is deceived. He took the bait. He possesses Judas and betrays Christ. He pushed the crowds and the leaders to crucify and to kill the king of the Jews. And Jesus died. And Satan and all of his minions shouted and rejoiced in what they thought was victory... They had killed the Son of God. But it was a trap. It was a trap because Jesus, the King, marched to death. He dove into death head first. He went willingly, for he was a conquering king, and he was going to rescue all of those who were captive in death. Satan was deceived. Hell has no fury, death has no sting. The grave has been defeated, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He went to death and he led those that were captive there out of her gates and he took with him the keys of death and of Sheol. Isaiah the prophet says, He will swallow up death forever and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. Hosea the prophet says, I shall ransom them from the power of Sheol, I shall redeem them from death. O oh, death, where are your plagues? O oh, Sheol, where is your sting? And then in 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul says, Death is swallowed up in victory. Our King is coming and He has brought with Him something that we desperately need. Our King is coming and He brings salvation. He brings with Him Salvation, when we look at Matthew chapter 21 with the triumphal entry, by the way, many of the stories that we have in the New Testament, in the Gospels rather, some of them are unique to certain of the Gospel writers. But the triumphal entry is mentioned in all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. And in the Matthew account that we read this morning, we find that Jesus is the one who is initiating all of this to take place. Jesus initiates the events that would lead to his death. Earlier in the Gospels, we find with the feeding of the 5,000 that they wanted to make him king right then and there, but Jesus goes off with the disciples because his time had not yet come. Another reason why Jesus went off is because the people are not going to be the ones who make him king. Jesus Christ comes as king And he comes on his own accord. He initiates when he is going to be crowned as king. He comes bringing salvation. And he comes initiating the events that are going to lead to his death. Because as a conquering king, death is not what men did to him. He stared death in the face and he went to it willingly to come out of it. Conquering it. Defeating it. Because Christ is our king. In the Matthew 21 account that we read this morning, in verse number 7, the Bible says that they brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. This donkey is one that is often portrayed many, many times on Palm Sunday. Perhaps you've seen a movie or a depiction of this, And many times we see just one donkey. Jesus riding on one donkey. However, the, the accounts both in Zechariah and in the Gospels, it's very clear that there are two donkeys. There's a mother donkey and her colt that is tied beside her. And the, the disciples are commanded to bring both of them to Jesus. So what is going on here? Many uh, critics of the Bible would say that When Matthew gives the account that there are two donkeys and some of the other gospel writers give the same account, except it only tells the story of him riding on a colt, that somehow this is a miscommunication and an error in the Bible. But what we understand is that the gospel writers wrote from their perspectives. They wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and gave the account of the story that they remembered with their minds being there. And it is not at all inconsistent. For one man to say he rode on a colt. And for another, Matthew, to give more details to the same story and mention the mother, the donkey as well. So what are the possibilities here of Jesus riding in on this donkey? The first one is that he sat on their cloaks. So it says here, they brought the donkey and the colt and put on them the cloaks and he sat on them. So the question is, and he sat on them, is that them referring to the donkeys? Did he ride on both donkeys, one foot on one, one on the other? Or did he ride on the cloaks that were sat on? So it says that they put the cloaks on them, the donkeys, and he sat on them, the cloaks. That's one possibility. The other possibility is that he only rode on the colt. We know that This is at least true that he rode on at least just the colt... ...because of the other gospel accounts that say specifically and explicitly that he rode on the colt. In fact, some of them only mention the colt being what he rode on. And so in this second option, he rode on the colt only... ...and the mother was there to carry the cloaks that was placed on her. The third possible understanding of this is the one that I think is most plausible... ...is that he interchanged between the two. He rode on the donkey, the mother donkey... ...because she was broken, because she had experience... ...and because the journey that he was going on... ...was rough terrain at certain parts. It was uphill at certain parts. And so he would have ridden her during those difficult times... ...as an experienced and as as a broken, as a tamed animal. And then to display his power over nature itself... He switches and rides on an untamed, an unbroken colt to ride into the city on the streets. He displays his power over nature as a king riding an untamed donkey. Now I don't know if you've ever ridden a horse. I don't know if any of you are crazy enough to ride a horse that is untamed. I have one that is mostly tamed, but she gets wild every once in a while. And most of the time, people have no desire to ride one that is not broken. Jesus rides this donkey and he rides her colt that had never been ridden before. Never had a man sit on to her. And without doubt, this is displaying that Christ's authority over nature. He is showing that he is the king who conquers. He conquers our enemies. He draws us to himself. He conquers nature itself. Because he is the king. In another account, there's another account in the Old Testament that speaks of this Jesus riding on a donkey. We have Zechariah, which is our text this morning, which is quoted in Matthew here. But also in Genesis, way back in the first book of the Bible, in Genesis chapter number 49. Do you remember when Jacob has his 12 sons... ...who are going to later become the twelve tribes of Israel. And he is blessing each one of them. And as he blesses each one of them... ...he goes through and he blesses, he comes to his son Judah. Which by the way, Judah is the one who he prophesied... ...never would the scepter leave Judah. Because the king is going to come through the tribe of Judah. Obviously, ultimately the fulfillment of this kingly line of Judah... ...is Jesus Christ who came as the lion from the tribe of Judah. But in Genesis 49, 11, Jacob turns to his son Judah, this kingly son, and he blesses him. And this is what he says. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. Another prophecy of Jesus' ...riding into the city of Jerusalem on a donkey. Ancient Middle Eastern kings would ride on horses to battle. But they would ride on a donkey when they were coming in peace. We find King Solomon at the day of his coronation... ...when he is going to be crowned as king. He is riding into the city on a donkey. However, never do we see in any account... A king riding on an untamed colt of a donkey. Many early church fathers would say that this pictures the Jews and the Gentiles. That the Jews were represented by this mother donkey. They were tamed. They were already brought into, under submission of Christ. And this untamed donkey that had not yet been brought unto, under submission would soon be brought under submission ...to the king, Jesus Christ. Jesus as king... ...brings all of his... ...into under submission. We find this... ...already not yet tension here... ...in Christ's kingship. The enemy is already defeated... ...in Christ's death. The head of the serpent is crushed... ...and yet the war is not over. Already Christ is king and yet satan is still going around seeking whom he may devour this already and not yet tension at the tower of babel we mentioned that it was the time when men thought that they could build a tower and reach the heavens they could reach god himself by building a tower tall enough and god curses them remember the curse he he changed and he confused their language Some would begin to speak Chinese and they hadn't before. Some would begin to speak Arabic and they hadn't before. They would speak other languages and they were confused. They couldn't communicate. They couldn't build. At Pentecost, the curse of Babel is reversed. At Pentecost, the curse of Babel is reversed. The apostles spoke and every man heard in their own tongue. Christ the king is now spreading his kingdom through the church and the gates of hell will not prevail against her. The gospel is preached and men and women and boys and girls, they hear all across this globe and they hear the gospel and they receive Jesus Christ. Because Christ is king, his reign is sure. Satan's defeat is certain. And Christ's kingdom is expanding and he has defeated and will defeat all of our enemies and all of his enemies. But we are part of that expansion of his kingdom. When the gospel is preached, the nations, this cult of the donkey, they're brought under subjection to Christ. They're subdued. Their wills are broken. And they're brought to the king. They're brought under submission to Christ. Martin Luther said, if I knew for sure that Jesus was coming back tomorrow, I would plant a tree. If I knew for sure that Jesus was coming back tomorrow, I would plant a tree. Why in the world would he say something like that? Maybe you've been asked that question. If you knew that Jesus was going to return in 24 hours, what would you do for the next 24 hours? Well, the reason why Martin Luther says I would plant a tree is because he was demonstrating a great truth. The second coming of our king should motivate us to faithfulness because of this already and not yet tension. Yes, Satan's head has been crushed. The death blow has been given to Satan, but he is not yet dead. He is still going about seeking whom he may deceive and devour. Because of this, our job is not yet over. The struggle isn't over. We must go out and take the Canaan land in victory for Christ. Christ's kingdom must be expanded by this reverse of Babel. The gospel must be proclaimed to the nations. Christ must bring into subjection all of those who will be His. Some might say, well, the second coming is surely on the horizon. So we have to identify who the Antichrist is. And everyone that we disagree with, we have to label them with the number 666. Some might say, we need to shave our heads, quit our jobs, and move to a secluded region. And live by ourselves, and look to the heavens, and wait for His return. But Christ the King brings salvation to the nations. He subdues them by the church going forth, not by the church in isolation. He comes in peace riding on a donkey, proclaiming to all who will hear. Jesus says at the beginning of Mark, at the very beginning of his ministry, this is the words of Christ in the book of Mark, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe the gospel. You see, Jesus Christ came the first time, and He came riding on a donkey. He came in peace. Those that were around Him, they wanted a king that would rid them of their Roman oppressors. They wanted a king that would come with a sword on a horse. That would kill all of their enemies right then, but, but He came in peace on a donkey. He came and He faced death in that manner. He humbled himself. But Jesus Christ, when he came in peace, had violence done to him. In their violence, they brought about their own destruction. But, friends, Jesus Christ is coming back again, and he's not coming on a donkey. He's not coming in peace on a donkey. He's coming on a horse, he's coming on a steed, ready for battle. Revelation 19:11 says, "Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war." I'd like to read to you Revelation chapter 21, the very end of our Bibles, a very beautiful picture of what we have that awaits us. "Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth," I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. And I will be his God and he will be my son. But remember this Christ who is coming again. This Christ who is pictured here. Is mounted on a white horse. He is not on a donkey any longer. And this is the words that he has for his enemies. He says in verse number eight, but as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Christ is king. And He conquers all of His enemies. Those of us who are saved are like the cult. We once had a wild heart, but the Holy Spirit of God brought us and subdued us. He brought us into submission. And He does not ride on us, but He lives and He dwells within us. And we are honored to be indwelt by the very Spirit of Christ. Bow the knee to Christ the King. He is coming again. And you can bow to Him now, or you will bow to Him later. You can confess Him as Lord now, or you will confess Him as Lord later. Because there is a day that will come in which every knee shall bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Long live Christ the King. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we're so thankful that You sent Your Son. And when He came, He humbled Himself. He put on flesh. He became a man. He even rode a donkey into that glorious city, Jerusalem. And He came here and He faced death so that we can face death, not in fear, but in expectation in joy rejoicing because to be absent from this body is to be present with our Lord. Father, we pray that you will strengthen, that you will encourage your church. We pray that you will encourage the saints that are here that heard the words of their conquering King that has conquered all of their enemies for them. And Lord, if there are any in our midst who have not bowed the knee to Christ the King, Lord, we pray that you would send your Holy Spirit That you would convict hearts. That you would bring them unto, unto yourself. Bring them under submission. That they would bow the knee to Christ the King. Even today, we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.